Seven Mile, do you remember when you first started thinking about your future? Like that moment when you said, wait a minute, there, there's something ahead that I need to be prepared for. Who you wanted to be, what you wanted to do, how you wanted to spend the days of your life. For me, it was third grade. I distinctively remember it. It was in third grade, and my teacher invited um, uh, different students' parents to come and talk about their jobs, right? And so um, as each person got up, they talked about their career field. They talked about how they got there. They talked about what they did on a, on a daily basis and to tell us about these different professions. And it was a way to introduce us. You might know what your mom and, and dad did, but, you, but, but those were just very limited. And so this, this kind of put an array of different professions and career fields fields for us. And all of it was meant to get us to start thinking, who do I want to be and what do I want to do when I grow up? And I remember third grade Clint taking this day very seriously. I remember, okay, this is it. I am going to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And as each person came through, I was thinking, okay, nope, not you. Move aside, next person. And I was ranking everybody and thinking very thoughtfully about what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to walk out of third grade with my life planned out. As each parent got up and and explained their career field, I remember thinking, okay, is this what I want to do with my life? And when the day ended, the decision was made. I knew exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be an astronaut. Yes, I lived in Houston, you know, just outside. See, Eric's got the NASA shirt on today. That's providential. I love that. Now, some things changed between eight years old and 36. I am not an astronaut, right? But from that day on, what, what, what didn't change was that I knew I needed to figure out who I wanted to be what I wanted to do, and to have a vision for my life. Ben Franklin once said, many people die at 25, but aren't buried until they're 75. What was he getting at? What he meant was that many people never truly live. They exist, they, they breathe, they take up space, but they do so without purpose, without meaning, without significance. Now think about it. If uh, age 25 is kind of that period when we've left preparation to start kind of building our career, to make a mark in this world, to maybe get married and have a family and have this life, 75 is about the average life expectancy, okay? So if you do the math there, that's about 50 years in the middle to truly live. Now, if you break that down further, that's 18,250 days to live for something, to live with intention to live with purpose. Now, without being clear on who you are, not knowing what you're supposed to be doing or even why you're doing it, Ben Franklin says you're simply existing, not living, and it is a slow death of 18,000 unfulfilling days. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a, a Dutch philosopher, in his journal dated August 1st, 1835, wrote this. What matters is to find purpose, to see what it really is that God wills that I should do, to find the idea for which I am willing to live and die. This is what I now recognize as the most important of all. This is what my soul thirsts for as the African deserts thirst for water. If you're like me, your soul thirsts for more than just breathing. 
We thirst for meaning and purpose to know, to be clear on what it is that we're willing to live every day of our life for and what we'd be willing to die for. In our text today, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, it's on page 886 in the Bibles underneath the chairs around you. We see that John the Baptist has found an identity. He has found a mission, and he has found a vision worth living and worth dying for that will satisfy his thirsty soul. Let's begin together in verse 19 to see the identity of John the Baptist. Hear God's word. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? With verse 19, we've left the prologue. Last couple weeks we were in verses 1 through 18, which is the beginning, that prologue, the background, thematic area of John's gospel. Now we've moved into the narrative drama. Now let me set the context. What we know from all of the four gospels together is that John the Baptist is out in the wilderness up by the Sea of Galilee on the east side of the Jordan River. That's about 75 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a rural area. It's called the wilderness. There's not much out there. It's kind of an obscure part of, uh, uh, of, of, of Israel. And people have been coming out to John the Baptist in droves to hear him preach and to be baptized. Now think about that. This is before cars. This is before modern transportation. You can't take the commuter rail out there. You can't take the subway. You've got to walk or go on some kind of animal. And 75 miles is a long way away. We're Bostonians. We don't even like to drive 75 miles. We don't like to go 10 miles. Think about that. Walking 75 miles to hear some guy dressed in um, a camel skin with a leather belt around his waist preaching a message about repentance and then getting baptized in the Jordan River. Word about John and his popularity has reached Jerusalem and the Jewish leadership wants to know what's going on. And so they send a recon team out up to the Jordan River to see who this guy is and what he's doing. Their mission is to bring back detailed information about what is going on in the wilderness. What would compel people to leave the comfort of home to go on this journey out into the wilderness? Why is he getting so much attention? And is this something we need to shut down? That's what they're there to do. So they come to John and they ask, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now let's stop right there. Their initial question is less about, hey, what's your name? What's your family background? They're more asking, are you someone special? Is there something significant about you? I mean, they can see all of these people are gathering around him. He seems to be preaching and teaching with authority. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but he's kind of changing um, how baptism was viewed in those days. And so they're thinking he's got to have some kind of authority. He, he's got to be on some kind of mission. And so why are you out here? Who are you? So the first thing they kind of ask him is, are you the Christ? Now, this word Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? It's a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah, and that word means anointed one. So they're asking, are you the anointed one? 
Now, all throughout the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings, they were set apart. They would be anointed for special purposes to serve God and to lead God's people. So anytime they needed a leader, God would raise up someone and there would be this anointing, this setting apart and God saying, I'm going to put my spirit on you. You have my authority. I am with you to lead my people. But as the biblical story unfolds, God promises to send not just another temporary Messiah, not just another temporary anointed one, but the anointed one, the Messiah. Because if you look at old, the Old Testament, if you look at Israel's life, each one of these leaders is raised up, but they're always lacking. Things don't always go well. And by the end of their life, they've usually abandoned God or led the people into some kind and some form of um, idol worship. One way you could think about the Old Testament is a period of cycles. Things get better, only for a time, and then they get worse. And there was this, this, this longing in the hearts of Israel. God, can you just not send another anointed one, but can you send the one, the one who is going to bring all of this to completion, the one who will deliver and rule your people once and for all? You have to understand at this point too, by the time John the Baptist is out preaching, it has been 400 years of silence. The last prophet, Malachi, From that point to John's life, there's 400 years of deafening silence. Who's starting to feel awkward? That was 10 seconds. 400 years. All throughout their history, They've had patriarchs, prophets, judges, kings, someone to lead them, someone to show them the way, someone to say, God has told me this is what we're supposed to do. And for the last 400 years, nothing. Silence. No prophet, no king, no leader, no word from God on what's next. And in the milieu of that silence, a lot of conversations were going on. Knowing God has promised to send us this this Messiah, who will he be? What will he be like? What will he do? Will he be a Davidic kingly Messiah? Will he come to conquer Rome and to rule as king? Or will he be more like a priestly Messiah? Will Will he lead the people towards holiness, devotion, and reform? Or will he be more of a prophetic Messiah? to give us fresh insight, new vision, a new word from the Lord. So John shows up preaching about the kingdom of God and repentance, and they want to know, are you the one who's breaking the silence? Are you the long-awaited Messiah? And John is clear, no, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. So they go, okay, if you're not the Christ, next question, are you Elijah? Now, if you go back in Old Testament history in the book of 1 and 2 Kings, you'll learn about God's prophet Elijah, powerful guy. And at the end of his life, as he's transitioning his ministry, he doesn't die. He's walking with his successor and uh, they're, they're hanging out and he's like, hey, you wanna see something really cool? And the heavens open up, chariots of fire come down and in a whirlwind, Elijah is taken up. So like, that's amazing, right? And, and so people are kind of going, man, um, 
what's going to happen? I mean, the guy didn't die. He's taken up to heaven. And there's this prophecy given in the book of Malachi that God is one day going to send a messenger. He's going to send another Elijah. And when he comes, you'll know something special is about to happen. God's program for redemption is coming to a significant moment. And so, again, in that period of 400 years, they're wondering, okay, we know Um, something about Elijah is going to happen. He didn't die, so maybe he's going to come back in the flesh to usher in this next phase of God's kingdom. And it also didn't hurt that John and Elijah dressed alike. They had the same sense of fashion, and they both had significant ministries of, of, uh, of, of, of preaching about repentance. And so they're going, You're, you kind of look like them. Uh, you kind of have a similar ministry. Are you Elijah? And people wondered, is he going to come in the flesh or is he going to be a guy who's kind of like him? And so there was confusion about that. So that's why they ask him. And here John says, nope, I am not Elijah in the flesh. I'm not physically Elijah. Now we know from the other gospels, remember there's four gospels. They all give kind of different perspectives on what's going on. And in the gospel of Luke, we do find out that John does fulfill that prophecy in Malachi that he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he's not actually Elijah. The angel tells John's dad, Zechariah, that John will, look with me, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the uh, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the, of the uh, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's John's ministry to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord and to do so in the spirit and the power and kind of in the the, the familiar way of Elijah. So John does fulfill a ministry like Elijah, but John um, uh, must have known that they were asking, like, are you actually him? And that's what he denies. I am not Elijah. So they go to the next question. They say, well, are you the prophet? Now, notice they don't say, are you a prophet? They say, are you the prophet? Again, Old Testament background is helpful here. Before Moses died, he said, hey, one day God is going to send another prophet like me one of my kind of caliber, one of like the, like the way that God uh, uh, used me to lead you out of um, bondage and slavery in Egypt, when all those plagues happen, when the, the parting of the receipt, one day God is going to give you another prophet who's going to lead you to the truer and greater and kind of final exodus. This is Deuteronomy 18 verses, uh, uh, verse 15. This is Moses speaking. This is right before Moses is going to die. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. So again, this is like 1500 BC. This is a long time ago. And and every prophet that would come, they'd kind of go, are you the prophet, the one Moses said to look for? And every prophet would answer, no. And so they're wondering, okay, if you're not Christ, if you're not um, uh, uh, Elijah, are you the prophet? Because we've been looking out for him Two, and John says, no, I'm not the guy. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah returned from heaven, nor am I the capital P prophet, the final prophet. So verse 22, they said to him, well, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
So the delegation says, okay, John, we know who you're not, but who are you? We can't go back to Jerusalem with nothing. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah once said. So John says, I am merely a voice. I'm out here in the wilderness crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, this is a quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And anytime you see that, it's always good to go back and read, okay, what was he quoting? What, what was going on there? This is Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Make straight a desert, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, what Isaiah is picturing here is a highway uh, being made from the wilderness into the city, a highway for God's return. See, in ancient times, when a king or, a, or a, a, an important dignitary would come and visit um, a town, they would kind of get ready. It's almost like when a city is getting ready to host the Super Bowl, they, they pretty everything up, they clean up the graffiti, they plant new plants. They want you to go, hey man, our city is beautiful. It's like this all the time, because they know lots of people are coming and flooding in um, to the city. I remember when uh, Houston was um, hosting the Super Bowl, uh, there's this road out by the airport that is sketchy and... Uh, and grungy, but like that year, it was beautiful. It's like, what happened here, right? That's kind of what they're doing. As they're going, if this king is going to come, we want to fix all the potholes. We want to clear out all the brush so that there is a prepared way for the king to come so that they know we got ready for you. We thought you were someone important. We did all this work to honor you and to dignify you. Isaiah goes on to say, make sure it's straight, make sure it's level, make sure it's free of obstacles. And John says, I'm that messenger. I'm the one out in the wilderness saying the king is coming and we need to make a highway that's ready for him to come. So let's get to work and prepare for his arrival. You see, the messenger is never the point, right? The messenger is always pointing to someone. The king is the point. The messenger doesn't call attention to himself, but to the coming king. Now, in this metaphor, John's not actually talking about, like, actually filling out the potholes that, that God is going to come riding in physically into the city. This is a metaphor of preparing a highway that's straight, level, and free of obstacles, and it's in his broader message of repentance, and what John is saying is we need to prepare for the coming king, the Lord himself. And if we're going to do that, we need to renew our minds. We need to take our opinions of what's right and wrong, and we need to straighten them out by the objective standard of God's word. We need to level our hearts as well. We need to take all those disordered loves, all of those uneven priorities, all those things that we've elevated to this place of prominence, and we need to deprioritize them, put them back in their right order for God so that he has our highest attention, our deepest affection, and our greatest allegiance. We've got some heart work to do. And then he also says we need to remove all of the obstacles out of our way uh, so that we can be committed to following God. See, to truly repent means that you come to this awareness of your sin and you're appalled by it. You're not just like, man, it's, it's, it's no good. Like you, you, you go, my sin is appalling. It is, it is awful. 
and it needs to change. And as, as you start to see your sin for the muck that it really is, you start to change your behavior as well. And when you receive the forgiveness of God that comes with that kind of repentance, you're just awestruck that God would forgive you. That's what John's doing. That's who he is. He's saying, I am a voice. I'm a messenger asking people, begging people to prepare the way for the Lord. We saw this in John chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. See, John was clear on his identity. And we need to be clear on our identity as well. We need to know both who we aren't and who we are. You see that in, in John, he, he knows I am not these people, but this is who I am. You see this humility in John that he didn't think more highly of himself. He knew that he wasn't the focus, that the world didn't revolve around him. He wasn't the light, but he was pointing to the light. John didn't um, self-promote or put the, the focus on him. He wasn't trying to build a platform or even create an identity for himself. He received his identity from God. Later on, we're going to see John saying, I, I was sent by God to do this, that God gave him his ministry. And the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, you and I also get to receive an identity that's far greater than any identity that you could build or platform on your own. In Christ, we are forgiven sinners and beloved adopted children of God the Father. That's not something you can procure on your own. It's a gift that you receive. It's an identity that you don't have to earn. It's one that's been given to you. In Christ, we are liberated slaves, rescued citizens of God's kingdom. And when you're one in Christ, you're being renewed and transformed, the Apostle Paul says, from one degree of glory after another. There's this principle in the Bible. If you try to achieve your own glory, you'll only end up with shame. But if you'll forsake that pursuit, you can receive the glory of God himself. Identity answers the question, who am I? The first step to truly living is asking, who am I? Who are you? So much of our life is exhausted on trying to build an identity from scratch instead of receiving an identity that only God can give. Pastor Tim Keller says, our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. He's saying, whatever you look to give you your identity, that thing for you is God. And we will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion even if we think ourselves as highly irreligious. What he's saying is there's no such thing as irreligious. Everybody is a worshiper, and everybody looks to something to give them value, worth, and meaning. And whatever that thing is, that is functionally your God. So Seven Mile, who or what gives you your sense of value and worth? When you want to know who am I, what answers that question. Keep that in mind as we go into verse 24 to see the second point in John's mission. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, 
then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, right? So some in this Jewish delegation we find out are of the, of the political group, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of Jews who were hyper-concerned with following every minute detail of the law of God as they understood it, with the emphasis being on how they understood it. There's lots of laws in God's, in, in God's word, but the Pharisees created extra laws, extra laws on top of God's law. If you were to describe the Pharisees with one word, it would be scrupulous or nitpicky. I mean, they wanted to, to know every little bit. They're like the holiness police. Now, it's not that following God's law is wrong. It's actually a very good thing. But if you build your self-worth on how well you follow God's law, it is a recipe for pride. And if you happen to be really good at it, it elevates you to the point where you look down and shame others who don't do as good as you do. And so it's this group that starts with this next line of questioning. So they're saying, if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then why are you out here baptizing? It's like they're saying, if you're not those people, then you have no business and no authority to be out here with this preaching ministry and with this baptism ministry. See, at the time, it wasn't that baptizing was unknown. It's just that it didn't look anything like the way John was doing it. Some groups would would practice conversion baptism. So if you weren't a Jew and you became a Jew, you would get baptized. Or some in these monastic kind of um, secluded communities would see baptism as this way to um, cleanse themselves. But either way, in that time, if you were to be baptized, you did it yourself. There were these baptismal pools with these stairs and you'd, you'd walk down into it and you would baptize yourself. But here, John is the one administering baptism. It's not a part of the institution, and it's out in the wilderness. And he's baptizing Jewish people who are already Jewish. So they're not being converted from anything. They're not a part of these secluded monastic communities. And so they're wondering, why are you out here doing, what is it that you're doing? I mean, these are just everyday people coming to John to be baptized as this outward sign of their inward repentance. And since John is doing this without the authority and the commissioning of the Jewish leadership, they have questions. And so John answers and says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, John doesn't answer their question or reveal the authority that authorizes and legitimizes his preaching and uh, baptism ministry. Now, he could have. We find out in verse 33 that John has um, the right authority papers. Um, God has commissioned him. God has given him his authority. You can't get a better authority than that. But he doesn't answer that. He, he, He doesn't tell them, listen, my marching orders come from the top, from God himself. So you don't need permission from the Jewish leadership if God commissions you to baptize. But John doesn't feel the need to justify or legitimize his actions. Again, he knows who he is. He's the voice pointing everyone to Jesus. That's who he is and that's why he's here. If identity answers the question, who am I? Mission answers the question, what do I do? He basically says, guys, you're completely missing the point. You're concerned about my pedigree, about my papers, my authorization, but you're missing the one that I'm pointing you to. 
I'm just the opening act, and you're about to miss the main event. They're asking him if he was the Christ, and John says, no, you think I'm the Christ? He's actually here among you, and you guys don't even recognize him. In fact, his worth and his dignity is such that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, take it off, and wash his feet. See, in that culture, in this society, the task of removing sandals and washing um, feet was carried out by not just the servants, but like the lowest class of the servants. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy of that role, okay? And he's given me this amazing role, and, 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 and it's humbled me, and it's graced me. And John is actually kind of foreshadowing to John 13 when we're gonna get to Jesus washing disciples' feet, but you're gonna have to hang on for that one. John is saying, compared to the worth of Jesus, I am, whatever's below a servant, that's where I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. You see, John has seen something in Jesus, and it's produced in him a humility and a focused desire to serve and fulfill the mission that God has given him. He is not an Eeyore, woe is me, self-deprecating, walking around like, I'm just a low servant. That's not what he's going on. This is genuine humility that's being birthed in his heart, where he doesn't think more highly of himself than he ought, but he also doesn't think too lowly of himself either. He's been given this worthy commission. He has a right understanding of who he is and who Jesus is. And when you understand humility, look at me. It gives you the freedom from the need to constantly prove yourself. Isn't that exhausting? Feeling like you constantly have to prove your worth, have to prove that you're good at what you do. And when you have a genuine humility settled, a steadfastness where you don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, not too more lowly of yourself than you should, it gives you this freedom to free yourself from the need to constantly prove yourself because God is your focus. He gives you your worth. And what he says about you and the mission that he gives you becomes what's most important. See, humility allows us to take a step back and realize that the canvas of our life is not your self-portrait. So many of us think that life is all about us and that if we were to all step back, you'd see that all of life is this big, beautiful painting of ourselves. But when you become humble, you take a step back and you look and you go, wait a minute, the the canvas that God is painting is much more beautiful. It's much more uh, larger than I can imagine. It's not portrait mode. It's actually landscape mode. It's a wide angle landscape where God is the point and what he is doing in the world is what's most important and he is using all of us to bring about his glory. And when you can take that step back You find not only that you have a purpose and a mission, but that in denying yourself the place of the focus on the canvas, you come alive. See, John was clear about his mission, and it produced a steadfastness in him. There's a lesson for us to learn here from John's life as it relates to the question of what am I to do with my life? Remember, if identity answers the question of who I am, mission answers the question of what you are to do. Now, in terms of specifics, what career, where to live, what hobbies to take up, to get married or not get married, to have a family or not, there aren't specific verses in the Bible that I can go, hey, Josh, this is what you're supposed to do with your life. See, the Bible doesn't work like that. 
We work out the specifics of our lives as we consider how God has wired us and the opportunities that come our way. And I would encourage you to do that with much prayer and in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's what we can say for the Christian no matter the specifics of your profession and calling, no matter what career field you've chosen to go down, no matter uh, of your station or status in life, the principle that we can learn here is that every one of us is called to point to Jesus with our lives. That call is on everybody's life. That's clearly taught here. It's clearly taught uh, broadly in the New Testament. Matter of fact, when Jesus is commissioning his disciples, both his uh, current disciples and us who are following him today, he said these words in Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is not Jesus' suggestion This is not Jesus's, if you get around to it, this is Jesus's commission and command. John was called to point to Jesus in a specific place at a specific time for a specific purpose. And here's the beauty of Christianity. We are called to point to Jesus in our specific place, at our specific time, and for our specific purpose. God knows the purposes and the plans for you. He has put you where you are. You are not in this room today on accident. Your address, where you live, the, 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 the people you're around, your classmates in school, your coworkers, your neighbors, none of that is by accident. And God is saying, where you are and how I've made you and how I've wired you is so that you will point to Christ. That's your mission. Brother and sister, God has placed you where you are at this point in history to be a voice that points to Christ. See, people don't need to be impressed with you. You know why? We're not that impressive. Can we just say that and recognize that? And let it free us from feeling like we need to impress people. What people need is to be impressed with Jesus. New York Times columnist David Brooks writes about how at college commencements, we give graduates nothing but empty boxes of worthless advice. I'm looking at some Bentley seniors right here. You're going to have a commencement um, address in a couple of months, and you're going to get a box of nothing. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. Commencement speeches are larded with the same cliches. Follow your passions. Don't accept limits. Chart your own course. You have a responsibility to do great things because you are so great. He says, this is the gospel of self-trust. Graduates are in limbo and we give them uncertainty. They want to know why they should do this as opposed to that. And we have nothing to say except figure it out based on yourself with no criteria outside yourself. And they're floundering in a formless desert. And not only do we not give them a compass, we take a bucket of sand and we throw it all over their heads. Friends, Jesus doesn't throw a bucket of sand on your head. He doesn't leave you out there to figure out your ultimate purpose and meaning in the world. He has given it to you. He gives his disciples the dignity and the worth that comes with joining him on his mission. Jesus said it really clearly. And that story to Zacchaeus, he said, I have come to seek and save the lost. Your purpose and your mission is found in pointing people to Jesus. Christian, look at me. The reason you're often so bored is because you're not on mission. 
You're supposed to be bored if you are not playing your role in the cosmic, dramatic story that you are in. Of course, if you're not centered on the reason all of this exists, of course you're going to be bored. You're playing some side story of insignificance. You want significance? You want to come alive in your faith? Then be clear about who you are and the mission of God. It reminds me of an old gospel song from the Williams brothers back in the 80s. The chorus goes like this, and I won't sing it for you. They said, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Google it. Look it up today. Have your heart be encouraged by those brothers. That's it. That's it right there. Everybody who is in Christ can say, listen, when I look at who God is and who I am in light of that, I really am just a nobody. But that doesn't make me nobody. I realize in light of Christ, I'm just nobody. I'm trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That right there captures the identity, the mission, and the vision of John the Baptist. He was humble. He didn't think more highly of himself than he ought to. He didn't think more lowly of himself either. He had an identity given to him by God, and that was enough for him. And he had a clear mission, tell everybody about Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, it gave him a vision that he could save anybody because he was the Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. Let's look at the thing that John saw, his vision in verse 32. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, when you see the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John said, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. If identity is about who you are and mission is about what you're to do, vision is the why. Why are you doing it? Andy Stanley gave the best definition of vision I've ever heard. Vision is a picture of what could be with the conviction that it should be. In these verses, John tells us that when he saw Jesus, it gave him a clear and compelling vision for his life. In verse 32, we find out that it was in fact God who authorized and commissioned John in his preaching and baptism ministry. And in this same verse, he tells us about the time that when he baptized Jesus, right? Remember, John had been out baptizing people for some time now. Jesus comes to him and he, he, he goes and baptizes him. And when he did, something different happened that day. When Jesus got into the water, the heavens opened up, the audible voice of God the Father said, this is my son on whom I, in whom I am well pleased. And he saw the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descend on Christ and remained on him. And John said, wait a minute. I was told when I saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain on someone, I would know that's the Messiah. That's the son of God. That's who I'm supposed to point to. And in that moment, John saw Jesus for who he really is. Now, at this point, John doesn't go into much more detail about what it means that this son of God is the one who's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. John covers the Holy Spirit later in his gospel. Um, but readers who are familiar with the Old Testament will know at least this one thing about the Holy Spirit. Wherever the Holy Spirit is, there is life. 
That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He brings life. And so they would know, okay, the Holy Spirit is with this Messiah. And it not just descends on him, but remains on him. And he is able to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is able to give us the one who will give us life. Where the Spirit of God is, there is life. John baptizes with water that symbolizes repentance. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit to bring about new birth, regeneration in your life. John saw a clear and compelling Jesus, a vision of Jesus, and it gave him courage to live. As we see the life of John the Baptist, it was an easy road to him. But because of what he saw, he had courage both to live for Christ and to die for Christ. And when he baptized Jesus, it changed him. He had courage to live on mission with boldness. That's why he says in verse 29, the next day when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, everyone look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's one of those um, statements that's just full of meaning. This idea of the Lamb of God, this innocent sacrifice standing in the place of another is a strand that runs through the entire Bible. We get this first notion in Genesis 22 when Abraham has the promised long-awaited son, Isaac, and God says, hey, take him up on Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And if you're a father or just a human, you go, wait a minute do what? You can't be serious there. To a father, the notion is unthinkable. But Abraham had such a faith, a deep trust in God, that he knew somehow, someway, God will provide. He's made a promise to me that this son is the son of promise, and God will not go back on his word. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham's faith was such that he knew that even if he did had to sacrifice his son, that God would raise him from the dead. He knew God is a God of life, and even if the unthinkable happens, God will make it right. And before Abraham could go through with the sacrifice, an angel of the Lord says, stop what you're doing. I've provided another. And in the thicket is a ram, a sacrifice, an innocent lamb to stand in the place of Isaac. If you go in the book of Exodus, plague after plague is unable to break the hardened heart of Pharaoh. And we come to the 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborn son. God told Moses, the angel of death is coming. And it's coming to the whole land of Egypt. Not just the Egyptians, anybody who doesn't take shelter under the blood of, lamb, of the lamb, the firstborn son will die. And he instructed them, take a lamb without blemish, slaughter it, pour out the blood, and paint it on the doorposts and the lintels of your door so that when the angel of death comes, he knows the house who has taken shelter under the blood of the lamb and it will pass over you. And when the angel of death came, every house who had the blood of the lamb covering their house was spared and saved. The death of the firstborn lamb saved the firstborn son. On the day of atonement, you see this in the book of Leviticus, this day that would come every year to cover and atone for the sins of the people. Each year, the priest would take two goats and they'd look at the first goat 
and it would be slaughtered and slain as the payment price for sin. And the other goat, the priest would take him by the ears and he would confess all of the sins of the people, uh, transferring the sins of the people onto this goat. And then that goat would be carried outside, uh, picturing the sins of the people taken away outside of the city into the wilderness to be consumed and killed as well. And in that, we see this picture of atonement, the covering of sin, the payment price, and expiation, the cleansing of sin, sacrifice in cleansing. See, sin requires forgiveness, but it always comes at a cost. Just as God provided a substitute for Isaac, God provides a substitute for us. Just as God spared Abraham's son, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Just as the blood of the lamb spared God's people from God's wrath, the lamb of God pays the penalty due for sin and redeems all those who take shelter under the blood of the lamb. Just as on the day of atonement, it required the death of an innocent sacrifice, the lamb of God carries our sins away and gives us peace to cover our sins in our place. That's why John could say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was willing to live for Christ and even die for Christ because he knew that Jesus was the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you looking for a compelling vision, an anchoring why that will fuel who you are and what you're doing? John says, you don't have to look anywhere else. Behold means to look and to take in. Focus your eyes on the Lamb of God. When John saw Jesus for who he really is, it changed his life. He was the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, the final prophet, priest, and king. And seven mile, when you fix your eyes on Christ, you will have a compelling vision for your life. The late John Stott wrote this really long uh, quote that's worth us looking at together. Jesus is the prophet to end all prophets because he doesn't just bring a message of words. He is the word become flesh. He's the final word. He's the message to be received. He doesn't point to a way. Jesus said he was the way. He's the priest to end all priests. He doesn't just offer temporary sacrifices of blood, of bulls and lambs that need to be done over and over again. He offers himself as the only spotless sacrifice, human for human, perfect substitute once and for all. And he is the king to end all kings. He's not merely a good king. He's the perfect king whose authority to reign is his because he made it all. He rules with perfect justice, perfect goodness, so that the weak are strong, the vulnerable are protected, and people thrive and flourish. That vision of Jesus as the Lamb of God, the perfect and final and the only prophet, priest, and king that you'll ever need, it changed John. It gave him an identity. It gave him a mission, and it gave him a compelling vision. It provided all that he needed to live and die with purpose. Seven Mile, what are you living for? Who are you living for? What would you be willing to give up your life for? What will you do with the 18,250 days that you have to make a mark in this world? Will you give your life to be a nobody, trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody? Let me pray.